630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad. Just trying to confirm what this means for the uh, Alberta Junior Hockey League with Premier Kenny saying today that uh, sports are basically shut down except for leagues who maybe have their own protocols, which the AJHL has had, which why they've been playing for the last couple of weeks. But we're just trying to figure out exactly what that means or if the AJ has to apply for status to keep on playing their games. We'll talk about that as we go on tonight. And Brendan Escott, who is our Oilers Now producer here on 630 Chad and the play-by-play voice of the Sherwood Park Crusaders, will uh, check in a little bit later on. Obviously, the AJHL, one of the few leagues, at least in Alberta, that has been able to play, has attempted to play through the pandemic. No university, no college, uh, no high school. You know, I mean, no WHL, no NHL, no CFL. You all know the kind of things that aren't going on that have, are usually going on at this time of year. So we will see if we can get some clarification on that tonight. The red-white game today in Red Deer that was supposed to take place place as uh, part of the world junior selection camp that was called off because of a couple of positive tests for players so uh, hockey canada saying that uh, they make the decision to postpone the game and to suspend all camp activities for today now they also say that uh, all players coaches and staff members took mandatory covid tests and have continued to be tested regularly over the past 10 days um and uh, that they're working with Alberta Health Services to make sure that everything is uh, is done properly and no further comment at this time from Hockey Canada. So no red-white game at the moment. I mean, of course, we're in a situation where things can change often very quickly, but it, it is still scheduled for Saturday and Sunday for the U of A Golden Bears to take on Team Canada as part of the selection camp process. Game 6 o'clock Saturday and Sunday in Red Deer and to be televised on TSN. And of course, we had Grayson Paulinchuk from the Golden Bears on the show last night to tee that up. So that's uh, just some of the things to tell you here. Off the top, there is uh, one game I'll keep you updated on the scoreboard tonight. Eastern Conference round one playoff game in Major League Soccer. Now into the 86th minute, Toronto and Nashville nil-nil. So that one could go down to the wire there. Maybe some penalty kicks looming after a couple of wild penalty kick matches over the weekend as well. Thank you very much for tuning in tonight. My name is Reed Wilkins. It's Inside Sports on 630. Chet, uh, we're going to remember uh, Fred Sasakamoose tonight with Marty Klinkenberg from the Globe and Mail who uh, wrote some pieces on, on Sasakamoose over the year. Sadly, he passes away today at the age of uh, 86, believed to be from a presumed case of COVID-19, one of the first Indigenous players in the NHL was Fred Sasakamus and his son Neil made the announcement on Facebook. He uh, was able to survive about five, day five, going into the hospital and uh, just uh, the, the COVID virus did so much damage into his lungs. He said, I'm not scared. He said, I'm, I'm ready to go. If I got to go, I'm going to go. I said, you know what, Dad, you're, uh, if you're tired, you go. You, you, you go and... Uh, don't worry about us over here. Three o'clock today, Fred Sasakamos passed away, and uh, he really wants to. Uh, he wanted to thank everyone for what they did. He was able to see most of the videos that people sent in. That's uh, tough. This is what happens with COVID nineteen. The reality is, my mother's in a isolation. She's in a lockdown. My sisters are in a lockdown. And this is what what happens in COVID. We're two months away from a vaccine. 
Everyone just bear down. Listen to your chiefs. Let them do what they have to do. Listen to your mayors. Listen to your premiers. Listen to the prime minister. Listen to the other party. Just listen and comply for a while. We're going to get a vaccine soon. We're going to get back to normal. I don't get that chance anymore. Mm. My father is... uh, He's going to miss it by two months. And uh, if you have any uh, sincerity towards other people, just keep quiet about your uh, your the way you talk about uh, anti-masking and that. I don't. I lost a father now. To uh, we lose a a grandparent and a parent uh, just because of stubbornness and silliness and selfishness. He's gone anyway. It's a uh, it's a reality for us now. We prepared ourselves really good today. That's why I'm able to speak. But uh, I want to thank. Uh, I know, like Brian Troche gave me a call about an hour ago, and uh, he he really wanted to talk to my dad. I promised him I would hook him up into a call, and he wanted to talk to him, um, kind of give him well wishes. But uh, he's no longer here. And uh, you guys keep safe. So that was Neil Sasakamu speaking on Facebook earlier today. His uh, father, Fred, passes away at the age of 86, one of the first Indigenous NHL players who uh, that accomplishment has been celebrated extensively over the years. Uh, Marty Klinkenberg interviewed Fred on a couple of occasions, and we're going to have Marty on for some perspective and memories coming up after the 6.30 news. Uh, pretty uh, pretty honest stuff there uh, from Neil. Pretty heartfelt as he, as he put out that message today. Okay, uh, it's 11 minutes after the six, uh, after 6 o'clock. So we do have a lot to get to. Um, I, I, Chris Joseph is coming up in a couple minutes, former NHL defenseman. We'll touch base with him, two-time member of the World Junior Team. We'll get some memories there, and uh, he'll remind you a little bit about Dave's Drive for Sports Central and the Edmonton Oilers Community Foundation. That's going on until the end of the week. Uh, we're going to talk to the new head coach of FC Edmonton. They have a new head coach and director of f- football operations. Alan Koch is going to be on the show, and uh, we'll talk to a local guy who built a pretty incredible reproduction of the Boston Garden. Not life-size. I-, I think he actually plays table hockey on it, so we're going to get that story, too. That'll be fun along the way. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Um, you know, it's one of those days where... I realize it's a pretty heavy day. We uh, we brought you the the premier and Dr. Hinshaw and uh, and uh, Minister Tyler Shandro live here on six thirty Ched for you know over over an hour this afternoon. I, I'm certainly aware of that. I, I feel what's going on. Uh, we're going to give you a sports show tonight. I, I think throughout this process, I've tried to just say, hey, I'm here. You want to get in touch? Uh, you need to call or text. Uh, that that that's fine. Uh, we're still going to do a sports show. Um, and that's just because what we do, it's not to, you know, diminish or take away or ignore other things that are going on. We still want to try to tell you the sports stories of the day though. And obviously sometimes they do interlock with, uh, with the pandemic. So anyway, wherever you are, I I hope you're doing okay. And I really do appreciate that you're tuning in and Chris Joseph, when we get back. to have 
have you tuning in tonight, 617. Inside Sports on 630, Chet. Uh, I believe uh, the last time this gentleman was uh, on air with me, because I, uh, I, I we had to text a little bit today, and I was looking at our, our text messaging history, and uh, I believe it was uh, probably <laughs> on a face-off show for a, a preseason game last year at Studio 99, which I have not been into since March. And we welcome back to the show a guy who played uh, over 500 games in the National Hockey League, including a long stint with the Edmonton Oilers. Former NHL defenseman Chris Joseph is on the line. Chris, nice to talk to you again, man. How have you been? Good, Reed. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to, to talk to you. You know, of course, strange circumstances. But like I said before the break, uh, we, we know there's a lot of heavy stuff going on in the world. So if uh, a show with sports in the title can give people a little bit of a break, uh, we'll, we'll try to do that every night. So so thank you for, for checking in. It, it's always good to get your perspective. I, I was thinking, too, because, you know, we got the World Junior Camp uh, going on in Red Deer. And, and again, we know there's some uncertainty there. But you were you were twice a World Junior uh, player for Canada. And I'm wondering if you went through anything like the process these, these kids go through with the camps nowadays. Well, I think I definitely did the camp in, uh, 87. Um, and it was a bit of a blur, but I was playing junior in Seattle. I got, a, I think I was a late invite to the camp, which was in Ottawa and, uh, made the team from there. And then we, uh, went to Czechoslovakia where the infamous punch up and Piestani <laughs> ensued, so, uh, and then the next year I was up in the NHL and actually I missed the entire camp because I was on loan from the Oilers. So I, I had gone that year straight to Moscow. Oh, so they, they put, they did, but did you know you were going to get a spot or was it kind of last minute where they said, no, come over and play? Uh, I think they were, I think it was kind of last minute. I think the Oilers, uh, and the national team were sort of working it out and then it was kind of last minute. And then, um, what I ended up doing is I, I went to Moscow to join the men's national team. We played in the Izvestia tournament and it was in Moscow and it was pre Christmas then I ended up staying one day as an 18-year-old in Moscow by myself, and then the national junior team came over and I joined them. So the, my 24 hours in between was scary, but other than that, I was well taken care of with the national teams before and after that. Now, an 18-year-old Canadian in Moscow in the 1980s, I know it was only a day, but by yourself, was that just stay in your hotel room and don't answer the phone, or how did you approach it? Yeah, pretty much. I think I ended up going down to the lobby, and I asked about food, in which I got some soup or something like that, but I didn't do much. Like, I had some food. I snacked on whatever I had in the room, and then finally I said, you know what, there's got to be some kind of, like, restaurant and i went down uh got some food and went back to, up to my room it was pretty much like a covid lockdown i was uh, in my room for almost 24 hours until i could greet the next team coming in wow and uh, obviously the team bounced back from the the punch-up disqualification to to win the gold medal it's okay chris i'm trying to remember here if i count the world juniors and if i count the canadian men's national team in 87-88, would have you not played for six teams total? Yep, I did. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> it was uh, it was my first year pro hockey. 
I played on six different teams. It was it was nuts. Like I I think I made 10 transactions that year. I was it, I I started with the national team in August training camp. I ended up going to Pittsburgh, made the team there, got traded here to Edmonton in the Paul Coffey trade, played a bunch of games, started sitting in the press box. Uh, then they loaned me back to the national team at Christmas. Then I joined the national junior team, went back to Edmonton where I played a few games and sat in the press box a little more. And then the rules were, I think, different back then. I could go back to junior. So I went back to junior in Seattle and finished the last 30 games of the season there. Then once that season was over, uh, we were eliminated from the playoffs. I went to the Halifax Oilers and joined them for round one, which we didn't make it past round one. And then I went back and joined the big club. And that was the year that they won Wells Gretzky's last Stanley cup. So it was a whirlwind of a year for sure. Um, you know, it's hard to get your bearings when something like that happens as an 18 year old, but you know, that's the game. The game can be, the game can be tough sometimes. That, that's an amazing year. So in the 88 playoffs with the Oilers, would you practice with kind of the main group or were you in more of a black ace go out with a smaller group type situation? What did you yeah, do? Yeah, I was definitely a black ace. There was, uh, there was a bunch of guys. Uh, I want to say Bucky, but, even then, I think Bucky was playing um, Kelly Buckberger, but I think there was uh, there was probably ten or twelve of us typically that would skate around as black aces, and you know you're you're hoping for that injury so that you can get in. Nothing big. You don't want anybody to get too hurt because you still want to win the cup. Just a, maybe a pulled groin gets you in for one game or something, right? Uh, so I did that in 88 and I actually did it again in 1990. So I got two years with the Oilers where I was a black ace for two Stanley cups, but I didn't get my name on a, on the cup or a ring. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Chris Joseph yeah. joining us tonight on, uh, on inside sports. Okay. So, uh, you're now, uh, a, a firefighter and it's an interesting tie-in because we want to talk about Dave's drive for Sports Central, and we should remind people uh, they, they might be able to see you <laughs> if they're dropping yeah. off some used gear or whatever. Yeah, so Dave's drive is obviously, um, it's named after Sammy, Dave Semenko, uh, who is a, a, a local favorite, Oiler favorite. Everybody loves Sammy, and he was awesome. Um, so basically, it's to try to raise money uh, and what we see more typically is people dropping off used uh, sporting goods equipment, and you can drop it off at Sports Central, which is over by uh, the old Northlands Coliseum, or you can drop it off at any police station or any fire hall. And if you guys want to come to my fire hall, go ahead. I'm at uh, Station 23 in the West End, but you just got to make sure I'm on shift. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, it's like Sports Central is so cool, too. And Dave's Drive, um, you know, again, to help disadvantaged kids in the, the community. Uh, I mean, it's helped so many uh, kids over the years. I was at the kickoff about a week and a half ago. Uh, they did it kind of in the loading bay at Rogers Place. The Oilers Community Foundation got it rolling with 1,200 pieces of, uh, of, of new equipment. They've helped about 160,000 kids since being founded in, in 91. And as you know, Chris, hey, like it's, we're a hockey country. Uh, it's a hockey city. But yeah. uh, people should remember, too, bikes, ball gloves. You got an old football lying around. <laughs> like, bring it to yeah. Sports Central. Exactly. And, you know, people, 
especially nowadays people are realizing it but you know like everybody seems to think that you know these are kind of essentials that every family can and should have and it's not really the case there's a lot of families that can't afford to to get that stuff and to see uh, the joy that it brings to the kids whether it's hockey or basketball or uh, bicycle or whatever it is it's totally worth it you know so many I know myself I you know I put two boys through hockey I put a, a girl through dance and you know like they outgrow the stuff faster than it gets worn down so you know anything that you got laying around if you're able to uh, drop it off it would be uh, much appreciated yeah hey chris i always enjoy having you on the show uh th- thanks for uh, giving dave's drive a bit of a push here and i appreciate going down uh memory memory lane there from your your late teens a very uh memorable and a uh you learned a lot about packing suitcases efficiently, I guess. <laughs> For sure, yeah. It was, quite, it was quite the experience, yeah. Yeah. Hey, appreciate this, buddy. All the best to you and your family. Take care, okay? Thanks, Reed. Same to you. That is Chris Joseph checking in tonight. And, uh, again, don't forget, sportscentral.org. And uh, they are rolling with Dave's Drive until the end of the week. But, you know, Sports Central doesn't go away once Dave's Drive is uh, over. So check out how you can uh, help out. Again, if you have any generally used equipment for, uh, for hockey or any sport around the house, they'll be, uh, they'll be pleased to take it for sure. Okay, we got to take a quick timeout uh, for the news coming up at 6.30. Fred Sasakamus has passed away at the age of 86, one of the first Indigenous NHL players. Marty Klinkenberg with the Globe and Mail. Uh, got to interview Fred and we'll have some perspective on his life and his personality when we get back. All right. Thanks a lot for tuning in tonight. So yeah, the premier did announce that uh, no sports in the province, unless you have other uh like your own sort of protocol set up in order to be able to play um so at, at the moment the U of A Golden Bears proceeding as if they're going to play the Canadian World Juniors on Saturday and Sunday in Red Deer the World Junior team did call off their red white game today because of a couple of positive tests with players and uh we believe it's uh, still all systems go for the Alberta Junior Hockey League but we'll discuss that and uh, try to get some clarity here with Brendan Escott coming up between 7 and 7:30 Fred Sasakamus has passed away at the age of 86 one of the first indigenous NHL players and we welcome Marty Klingenberg back to the show Marty good to talk to you again wish it was under happier circumstances but hope you're doing okay I am I am doing fine here in isolation in Toronto, and um, you know, and I miss all you guys out in uh, out in Edmonton. And yeah, it's a it's a sad day. Well, you know, Fred was uh, he was he was a large figure in in the world of hockey. Um, you know, the Oilers have put out a statement. Uh, he, he was honored at uh, at their games on a couple of occasions, and uh, you know, I, I think a very a, a very significant figure. And you know, you you've interviewed him in the past. I'm just wondering what he was like to uh, what he was like to talk to, and how he sort of acknowledged his place in hockey history. Wow, let me t- let me tell you. When I heard this heard this news this afternoon, um, I was completely I was flooded with these memories. I went and spent uh, a day with him with, uh, with a photographer uh, from Edmonton, Jason Franzen, and it was either the last week of November of 2016 or the first week of December. 
And we drove from Edmonton to the, let me see if I can do this, uh, Ta-Kako Cree Nation in, in Central Saskatchewan. Um, and uh, we drove there the day before, and then we met him the next morning. And it was, he actually came and retrieved us. We got terribly lost. Uh, the First Nation is, is, is in quite a remote place. And he came and kind of rescued us out on out on the snowy road, took us to his home, and and we sat there and talked maybe for about an hour or a little more, and he showed us his his uh, some of his mementos, and I think he he still had the, the telegram uh, announcing he was being called up, and I I believe he had a, I can't remember how much it was, but he. He had, I think he had a, uh, a check that he was given and that he used to buy to buy a big car at the time. It might have been a $2,000 check. And I think, I can't remember, I think he bought a Cadillac or something with it at the time. Um, but from there, he took us to, so he was 83 at the time. And something else I remember about this day is that with, without exaggeration, it was between minus 35 and minus 40, uh, air temperature and the winds were howling. It was one of the coldest days I could remember. And he 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 drove us. We followed. Well, we followed him. Uh, he took us to this cabin. It was falling down at that point. At that point, where he was born on Christmas Day in 1933. A, a little log cabin was about 24 by 24 feet, and. You know, there were uh, 13 of them in, had been in this place. And he started talking about what it was like and, you know, describing these, uh, gosh, these amazing things where, I mean, they had no electricity, of course, and, um, you know, they'd sleep at night with, with blankets made from rabbit skins, and their, their light was a lamp that was, was made from rags braided together and soaked, and soaked in moose fat. And, you know, like, my whole mind came alive as he was telling these stories. And then from there, kind of sloped, from there behind where the cabin sat, um, it, it, there was like a slope that went down to this little lake. And this was where, as a little boy, his grandfather had uh, taught, him, taught him to skate. And his grandfather had carved hockey sticks for him out of willow branches and, you know, they'd used, uh, you know, pucks made out of horse manure. You know, they'd slap those around the ice. And we were standing out in the middle of the of this lake, and he's kind of looking around and talking about it. And I remember my eyes were tearing from how cold it was. But as he was talking, he points kind of across the way, and he said, now, there used to be, there was a little toboggan, toboggan trail over there. And that's where my grandfather would drag me down, and and he and his eyes started getting teary, and my eyes started getting more teary, and you know he was he was just talking about all these, just amazing amazing things. It was one of the best. I mean, just in the first two hours, I felt like this was one of the most special days that that I'd ever had with somebody. Well, Marty, that. <laughs> 
That's an incredible story. Th- thanks for sh- thanks for sharing that. I mean, that's 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 such a beautiful story and uh, and awesome how Fred shared that with you. And I mean, look, it, it's hard enough to make the NHL. Um, you know, he played games when there were only six teams. And, you know, he was uh, an Indigenous Canadian, obviously, and went to a residential school and and was abused while he went to school there. Uh, I mean, just an incredible long shot to make the NHL. And what he had to persevere through was, was pretty incredible. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, there were 125 players roughly at the time, right? And, and besides that, so, you know, so the pool, there were a few teams and a pretty good pool of talent and he made it from what I, from what I heard about him, he had a, he was a center. He had a booming slap shot. Um, he, and was a, and was a very, and was a very good skater. What, you know, but he was, he was playing in the Western Canadian hockey league, I think when he got called up and he was barely out of his teens, you know, and, here he was taking, you know, face-offs with with, uh, with Rocket Richard, and he played against Gordie Howe. And his career was very short. I mean, it was only 11, 11 games, I think, in that 53-54 season. But, you know, it, it was more than that. It was, you know, it was being the first Indigenous player. And we all know from, you know, our, our history uh, that, Indigenous people, you know, have, have had a very difficult time. And, you know, looking back into that era, I can only imagine how difficult it was for him uh, in terms of, you know, in terms of racism and, and some of those other challenges he had to overcome. Marty Klinkenberg from the Globe and Mail joining us tonight on Inside Sports, remembering Fred Sasakamoose, one of the first Indigenous NHL players. He's passed away at the age of uh, 86 uh, in Prince Albert after a presumed case of uh, of COVID-19. Was he, uh, I mean, just when, when, when you talked to him, was he, uh, and I know you shared that, that, that incredible story of, of the time you spent to him, did he... I don't know how to word this exactly, Marty, because he obviously was thrust into a position where he got a lot of attention. And and you and I know from in the media, sometimes people don't like that, even if they believe their message or their experience is important. They're not always comfortable telling their story or being singled out for that. You know yeah. what I mean? What was How, how did Fred sort of d- deal with the attention that he got? You know, it's funny because I called him uh, I saw a there was a pre-game ceremony uh, during a Maple Leafs game it was and I and it was kind of honoring him and Indigenous people and uh, residential school survivors and I saw it on a hockey night in Canada game and I uh, I called I, you know when I when I saw that I was immediately intrigued and I called him a few days later and you know, introduced myself and told him I'd like to come there. And he was, he was willing, but um, he, you know, he seemed a little bit shy about it. And, you know, so then, uh, you know, we, I, I touched base with him again. And then he, he, you know, he invited me there and, and Jason there. Uh, And, and once we got there, it was like, a dam had broken 
with the with the things that he spoke about. The one thing that he did not he did not speak a great deal about was was about the the abuse at um, at the residential school. The information for that I largely gathered from um, he testified at the at the for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and. And with that, he just, he said to me, you know, very politely, you know, that's something that he, he literally hid it from everybody in his family. Nobody knew until he testified for 70 years. It was an awful truth to him. And he, uh, so, you know, so he politely kind of deferred on that. And, you know, but, but he said to me, well, you know, no matter how much people talk about residential schools, um, the hurt will never ever go away. Um, you know, he, that same day he took us. Another thing that he did was in his truck, which could could climb could climb steep hills, sleep uh, steep snowy hills like a mountain goat. He took us way up to this to this memorial um, on on the First Nation to residential school victims. And I remember standing there, same thing, freezing, you know, freezing my butt off, but standing there and, you know, the silence was just deafening. And it was one of, it was one of those goosebump moments, you know, or kind of the hair on the back of my, uh, my neck stood up, you know, it, it was a, I'm not a particularly religious person, but it was definitely a spiritual moment. Yeah. Marty, you're a great storyteller, and I know you're uh, – you are you have something on Fred going up today probably online? Maybe it's already up, and I haven't seen it yet. It, it probably will be posted pretty soon. I've, I've actually got a query from an editor that I'm going to give her a call here in a bit, but it will be posted in a, in a while, and I believe it's going to be on page 1A of the Globe and Mail tomorrow. Right. Well, Marty, thanks for checking in. Uh, you know, I, I know it's uh, it's sad to say goodbye to Fred, but I really appreciate your perspective on on his life and career and your experiences with him. And uh, it is nice to talk to you. And hopefully, at, at some point, we'll be able to see each other at, at a hockey rink down the road, Marty. Yeah, I look forward to it. And thank you very much for asking me, Ruth. That is Marty Klinkenberg. That uh, really good stuff from Marty, columnist for the Globe and Mail, remembering Fred Sasakamus, who has passed away at the age of 86, one of the first Indigenous NHL players. And um, Marty was talking about spending a time with him and uh, Fred's incredibly tough journey just to make, well, tough's probably an understatement, but just to make the National Hockey League. Really happy to have uh, Marty share some of those experiences and those stories tonight on the show. Absolutely. I'm happy to hear from you, 780-496-0063. Don, I got you your text. Thank you very much for saying that. I appreciate that you're listening. We're back after the break. Boy, a lot of people chattering online about Connor McDavid's house over the last 24 hours or so. Why are people surprised he has a nice house? His salary is $12.5 million per season. Anyway, I have uh, a footy match 
on television. By the way, in about an hour, we'll introduce you to the new head coach and uh, director of football operations for FC Edmonton, Alan Koch. Grew up in South Africa, but has been in uh, Canada coaching and playing since about the, the mid-90s. So I want to get his story and his tale of how he worked through the uh, the ranks of coaching. Uh, briefly coached in MLS with Cincinnati a couple of years ago. I do have the MLS playoff game on between Toronto and Nashville, and it is not looking good for Toronto. They are in the final minute of extra time, trailing 1-0. Nashville scored about 10 minutes ago to take the lead. Of course, it's two 30-minute halves for overtime in MLS. Toronto with some pressure here, but they cannot find the equalizer. And now it looks like uh, Nashville's, well, maybe not. Toronto's trying to keep it alive here and uh, get it into penalty kicks. I, I was mentioning on Oilers Now with Bob Stoffer. I, I was on yesterday. I wound up watching this the the penalty kicks on I think it was Saturday afternoon between Orlando City and New York City, and those are the names of the teams. Which that that is the one thing I would improve about soccer. There's basically four nicknames: City, United, FC, and Wednesday. If you start a soccer team, basically you're going to name your team one of those things. I'd probably go with Wednesday. Wilkie Wednesday would be my team, as Nashville has indeed won it 1-0 to upset Toronto. So they they went to penalty kicks, and it, it was Orlando and New York. And New York went first and uh, and missed. I think the ball hit the crossbar. And then the next seven shots all went in. So it's, it's five shots total for each team. So then Orlando... Uh, it had the, it had a chance to win with a save, and the goaltender made the save on New York's fifth shot. And they're celebrating, they're running around, and then the announcement comes down, this play is under review. And they were reviewing if the goaltender left the goal line before the shooter kicked the ball, which I thought was kind of a standard thing in soccer that you try and cheat a little bit, and as long as you don't really abuse it, they, they let you get away with it because it's so hard to stop the shots anyway. So he left early. So the uh, New York player was going to get to re-kick it. Uh, but first, the goaltender got a yellow card for leaving the line early. It was his second yellow card of the game. So he gets thrown out because that's a red card. So now Orlando is going to put in their backup goaltender to face the shot. And he was going in, then he was coming out. And then they finally decided they've used up all their substitutions so they can't put the new goaltender in. So they had to get one of their defenders, the guy who plays on the back line, to go be the goaltender. So this would be, this is what I said on Bob's show the other day, this would be the equivalent of Caleb Jones or Adam Larson or or Tyson Berry having to go play for the goal for the Oilers because for whatever reason they weren't allowed to put in their other goalie. So so they, so they score... Uh, Orlando scores, New York scores, Orlando scores, getting into the sudden death kicks. And then this defender stops a kick. And then Orlando scores and and wins the match. The shootout took 22 minutes for 14 penalty kicks because of the, 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 the delay figuring out with the substitution. And MLS said that the officials in, did everything correctly. They wound up enforcing it correctly. The right things happen, but that it took too long. And as a result, they're not going to allow these... Uh, these officials to work any more games in the postseason. Now, I don't watch a lot of soccer. I don't watch a lot of MLS. I might flip. I flipped to that because I saw it was a penalty kick situation coming up. Um, and, and that's what I saw. I certainly always remember that because it was extremely bizarre. Anyway, uh, not a lot of news on the National Hockey League. Man, this is dragging on. I, I'm really skeptical about 
December 1st. I, I guess maybe they could come up something with uh, with the end of the week. I talked to Christopher Stieg on the show last night, former NHL or retired a couple of years ago. He had this take on negotiations between the players, the players and owners. asked a lot of them is what it is. They, they've put their bodies and they put their everything on the line, and obviously owners do. They put their wallets on the line. Um, but again, you go back to the CBAs and an understanding. You think of an understanding, and you also understand these are uncertain times. So you got to both work together to make it work. But if it's only coming towards the players, then I understand why they aren't happy. Um, escrow is a lot of money to give away um, for a player. I've done it. I'm, I wasn't happy doing it. You understood it to an extent. Um, but you did not like doing that. So for now, for them to come and ask for cuts and deferrals of payments and and so on, I'm sure the players aren't happy. I'm not sure where negotiations would go or where they would be. I haven't been involved in any of that and asking questions, and I'm I'm not going to ask questions. I'm going to let those kind of come out. So, uh, but again, for me, I, as a player looking at the players, I, I would be very frustrated at the moment. A little bit there from Chris Versteeg, and the players do not like that word escrow because that's money coming out of their paycheck that they are probably not going to get back if the revenues don't meet the predictions. And in this environment, I would doubt that they would. Okay, we got a break for the 7 o'clock news. Trent Bueller is coming up later on the show as well. He he built a replica of the Boston Garden. He's, he's an Edmontonian, local musician, and uh, you can play table hockey on this. I know I don't know much more about it. So you like me are going to be learning about Brent's or about Trent's project, why he did it, how he got it done, how exactly the table hockey element works. That's going to be cool. He's coming up later on too. 630 Chad inside sports with Reed Wilkins weekdays at six on 630 Chad.